1: And welcome to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with your host, Brent Mikosh. Brent, good to see you again. How you doing?
2: Um, all things considered, I'm doing pretty good. I've, I, my only real social media fix is LinkedIn. And I love LinkedIn because it's generally, it's pretty positive, but I got to admit there's been a little bit more doom scrolling about everything <laughs> that's <laughs> oh, occurring yes. in the world in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So for future references, it is now October 24th when we're going to be recording this conversation I expect it to probably be out before the 1st of November. I'm expecting this one to go out next week. But uh, a lot's changing really fast. And uh, I want to get this episode to everybody in a timely matter. So obviously I'm talking about we still have Russia, Ukraine simmering in the background, which people mm-hmm. seem to have forgotten about. Now we've got Israel, Hamas. The U.S. has two carriers now there. Putin has said he's got bombers with hypersonic missiles pat- patrolling the Black Sea. I think China is sending six ships, including a couple of destroyers to the Middle East. So this has a this has the possibility of getting uh, even more complex and maybe even a little bit more unsettling than it is right now pretty quickly. So I really wanted to bring in someone with a heck of a lot more experience in the geopolitical realm than I have. And so I've got Samaj McDowell and Samaj is he's he's an expert in terms of geopolitical risk. He actually hosts a podcast himself. It's the geopolitical pivot podcast. He's a public excuse me, published geopolitical author author rather. And he's built his career really observing the nuances of everything that's happening around the world. And and he put some great stuff up, up there on LinkedIn as well. So I encourage you all to follow him. But um, I'm really excited to just have this conversation. Hopefully learn something myself about these different pieces that are that are moving around the chessboard here. And so, Samaj, that's a very kind of brief intro to I mean, you got a long career. We go back you know, Booz Allen and, and a bunch of other experiences as well. So why don't you uh, just just give us a, an update in terms of who you are, how you got into this whole thing and and what got you to today?
3: Absolutely. Well, the the greatest statement, the greatest quote, I should say, um, I want to paraphrase this, um, by the ancient Greeks is that the person that knows, knows nothing. And so I like to say in geopolitics, well, I don't know anything because then that pushes me to learn more. Um, Now, granted, despite my publications, podcasts, and a lot of my early on professional career. I'm 26 years old, despite I look 38. And that's just because of the stresses of geopolitics. Uh, but I- You look pretty started, good, Samaj. You know, as, as a guy that's
2: 50, you look pretty good. But, but yeah, for sure, uh, stressful business you're in.
3: Uh, but I, I started my, my geopolitical fascinations when I was 11 years old. And it really, really came down to attraction to geography and, and culture and what what makes the world go round. And once I got into high school, the Arab Springs happened, my freshman year of, uh, of high school, Arab Springs so 2010, 2011 and part of my my job, well, I guess my job, but my my work at that time in high school was to find a trend, Twitter that was so encapsulating that i had to continue to monitor it and then give a end of the year report on what i found and at that time it's a time when twitter didn't really filter a lot of the content that was posted up on its on the social media platform and i was watching the series, the, the onslaught of the the syrian civil war and observing it on a daily basis the protests and government reactions the number one question that came into my mind and that was one what is going on? And then the subsequent question was, well, if it's happening there, it could happen here in the United States. If it were to happen in the United States, how would it unfold? That was my entry into intelligence analysis and really understanding geopolitics. So I tailored my my curriculum towards history, economics, macroeconomics or microeconomics. I looked at uh, American government. I, I also studied we had a class on CIA intelligence in the Cold War, and once I got to college, I already immediately knew what I wanted to study. So my my bachelor's was in government administration and international politics, and my minor's in international security. That's when I began my, my internships in D.C., um, and now here I am, just finished my master's from the Institute of Work Politics, at with a master's in statescraft and national security affairs, my specialization in defense studies as you alluded to, I started my podcast, The Geopolitical Pivot, uh, during the pandemic in my mother's basement. And she had sick and tired of me talking to her about foreign policy. She didn't care about <laughs> that. <laughs> to there are about 8 billion people in this world that could probably care more about foreign affairs than me. Here I am. And then I also was published with The Geopolitical Monitor, uh, more specifically on Africa, uh, security and counterterrorism, which is a big thing right now. Um, and now... Pretty much going on paving my own path as a, a geopolitician.
2: Well, it's it's quite a journey you've had, and and in terms of those, in terms of aging, you in the last uh, you know six or seven years or so. I mean that that's definitely accelerating now. And and you know three things I'd really like to discuss today is first we can we can talk Russia Ukraine definitely want to get into that. Um, dip for sure go into what's happening now with Israel and Hamas. And you mentioned obviously, and you've you've written some uh, quite a bit actually. There's an article you wrote about um. Of what's happening up in north africa right now and and that seems to me to be really overlooked you've had a number of military coups in that in that part of the of the world you've got the french essentially being kicked out you know that had, had historically been it's still <clears throat> even a post-colonial time the dominant economic player in that region and uh and there's a lot of resources there and and what it, it all points to is a lot of these age-old conflicts whether it's russia ukraine i mean they've got a shared history going back a thousand years obviously israel and and the Palestinians, and everything that's occurring in North Africa, these are age-old conflicts that seem to me anyway that they were suppressed by a very powerful Western world order that now has more vulnerabilities for sure than at any point in my 50 years. So those are kind of the three things I'd like to dive into. But Where would you like to start? I know I threw a lot on the plate there.
3: (laughs) Um, I think when we're talking about the much more long-term, and the one that which people don't really fully understand would be the Africa component.
2: Let's, let's, um, let's start there, because you're right. That one's kind of off the radar, but I think it's way more important than people realize.
3: It's off the radar. Um, and as you alluded to, because of a dominant economic or, or a dominant political military hegemon overlooking these particular regions, um, you didn't we didn't really hear much about um kind of the simmering domestic schisms within within Africa. Uh, but to the power of not just the, the phenomenon known as globalization, but also the disruptive capabilities of new technologies, especially in mass media, a lot we're witnessing a an accelerated unraveling, Um, and a lot of that unraveling has to do with something similar to what we saw in the 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Um, but this is on steroids. So when we're talking about the Sahel region, or even North Africa, you're talking about Libya, um, we're talking about an area, if you were to take a line from New York City and take it all the way to Vancouver. And if you look at that type of of mass, geographic mass area, everywhere along there, you have many different ethnic identities, religious identities, political identities, um, even down to tribal uh, demographics. And as France is continuing to to leave and that, that aspect of the remnants of the colonial era ends, you have an entire continent of, in the sense of a modern nation state, finding and forging their paths, but on their own accord. Unfortunately, that includes violence. So we're seeing in Mali, for example, the, the rebels. We're seeing in Nigeria, we have an uptick and tensions in the Biafra um, that we haven't seen since the 1970s. But then you also have Boko Haram in the north. All of this is going to have significant geopolitical implications, especially up to 2050, and I'll give you a little stats on this. By 2050, Nigeria is slated to become the third largest country by population. By year 2100, 50% of global births are anticipated to come from Sub-Saharan Africa. That was giving you an idea that the average age is around 18 in Sub-Saharan Africa and because of these large, concentrated population centers and vast amounts of mineral resources, you're going to have an, a large-scale strategic great power competition. We already see that with China, with their One Belt One Road, their undersea submarine cable lines, their investments into the mineral resource infrastructures and logistics. We're seeing Russia more so on the military side, so signing military defense agreements, and we saw that with Wagner Group. um, We also see it in the form of providing in a security apparatus towards a lot of the African-based dictatorships. Um, We see this with the European Union now, trying to not only create agreements with energy resources to lessen their dependencies on Russia, But it's also to provide a sense of an economic security blanket with the absence of France. Africa, uh, as we saw in Europe during the times of the Cold War, Central and South America, Africa is the next region or zone for great power competition, at least to 2100, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I I tend to agree with that because I was there. I spent a bunch of time there uh, several months back in 2006, more sub-Saharan Africa. And then I was back there in 2013. And you just started to see the Chinese showing up in mass at that point. And then 2013, it was way more pronounced. And it's been a little while since I've been back, but I've got, you know, some friends over there that I still communicate with. And they're there in force, you know. And I think that particularly a lot of these countries, if you're talking obviously the northern, let's call it third of the continent, we've sort of, and I don't really fully understand how this works. So I'm looking for your expertise here. But we, you know, France still, even though they had departed that region, you know, through the CFA franc system of currency that they had, they they really still controlled those countries. And now, and it's pricing of raw materials. It's basically direct access to a lot of these raw materials that were that were really va- valuable. And France, obviously, very much in our sphere, that looks like that's also falling apart. Can can you can you give me like a little bit of um insight in terms of the CFA system? What the status of it is right now, and if it totally falls apart, what that means for for the West in general.
3: So there are continual circulating ideas, actually, on the the African continent, as far as not just the replacement of the franc, the CFA franc, but also the development of a continental based uh, currency. And we see that a lot when we're talking about the African, the development African Free Trade Agreement which is something will be essentially resembling that of the the euro, uh, but kind based um, based off of African standards and probably most likely going to be backed by mineral resources, such as uh, gold. Um, However, that that process in itself has been uh, significantly challenging because each of the African nations, they have to reduce not just tariffs, um, but also the way that they view trade agreements on the on the continent. Something that, again, going back to the economic structure of the French, to it frank, it's not something that had to really be negotiated or really go into, into the weeds when it comes to not only developing a continental-based domestic currency, but also its power in relation to other currencies such as the, the euro or the the RMB for the Chinese or the, the ruble for, for the Russians. The other problem is that the because these are developing markets, especially in the African countries that have witnessed coups since 2020, it's very, very, very unstable at the point for a, a very prominent currency to be pushed forward. There's a lot of legislation that has to be done in institutional capacity changes. So then something uh, through a trade agreement or an African union based currency that we've heard since the days of Muammar Gaddafi uh, could come forward and, and and take shape. I don't see that happening anytime soon because then that would involve accountability in a lot of these African governments, which is too much to ask for right now. A lot of them are are handling with uh, protests and riots and legitimate the trying to legitimize coups of the coup governments and and trying to eradicate the, the 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 presences of the French. But as you alluded to, there's been no discussions right now, stable discussions about the TFA, uh, Frank and its replacement. Everything right now is solely combating terrorism, counterinsurgency operations, and and ensuring that there is a thumb structure on making sure that resources are able to get to global markets, but replacing a Frank, that's going to be an overarching West African continental endeavor.
2: And, and what's the situation like now up there? Because I think I believe it—I I might be wrong in this—but I think it was Niger that recently had a had a coup, and they and they very they very sort of publicly sort of pushed the French out of there. And uh, I remember looking at some news and reading some news and it's like, well, the U.S. has a base there, too. And I'm thinking, well, of course we do, because we we tend to in like every single place in the world we've got a base. And there was questions about whether that puts our footprint there, smaller footprint, but still at risk. This is all falling off the news, obviously, with everything that's occurred in the last couple of weeks. Is that is that I'm guessing it's still simmering in the background or what's happening in that in uh, that region?
3: So we do. There is a, a it's like a drone base essentially in, in Niger. Um, nothing of substantial force, but it's still a force nonetheless. Um, the the fear of the that came out of the, the post Niger crew realization was if they you know they're kicking out the French, the French military, the foreign legion, the the ambassador, the diplomatic staff, and overall trying to pave their own role, What would that then mean for our security posturing, especially when it comes to counterterrorism? counterinsurgency that has as far as I know and what I've seen through monitoring some various channels especially when it comes to Africa that that talking point sort of simmered down I know we've sent representatives and delegations over to Niger to not only negotiate as far as the the previous regime that was ousted um, but more specifically what, what would that mean for our access to our to our drone base to our facilities and nothing has essentially come out of those as far as an outcome. Um, at least something, nothing that I've seen. I haven't seen any news about removing the drone base or the drone base with any kind of jeopardy. Um, so as far as the United States and our presence is concerned, it's still floating around. Um, but when it comes to the French, and it's interesting because I've seen this looking at a lot of the, the African-based channels that are monitored that those that are still pro-West they're still open to Western dialogue and, and communication and, and crisis resolution. Just, they just don't like French. They don't want the French involved in, 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 the, in that formula for regional stability. So there are still avenues of approach to diplomacy and the, the framework, the Dimefield framework, uh, Dinefield being diplomatic, information, military, economic, uh, finance, intelligence, and law enforcement uh, does come to statecraft tools that we still have at our disposal. Um, it's just the the lashing out in the counter wave for an uprising or these coups are more specifically aimed at the legacy that the French possesses, rather than more the overall encompassing West or Western Europe, United States, and Canada.
2: Now, what's Russia's interest there? Because I view them massive resources on their own. So what what honestly like why is the why is the Wagner group active there and, and what are they doing? like I've never fully understood that either
3: so if looking at Africa, think of Africa as sort of a, an influence projection point now Russia essentially is seeking to capitalize on the legacy of the Soviet Union um during the the immediate times of Decolonization. So going back to the fifties and the sixties, and and you'll see that a lot in their propaganda, especially Vladimir Putin's speeches, where he he gives an ode to the Soviet Africa uh, relationship, uh, the the notions of pushing back the West and unraveling colonialism and giving Africa um, a position within global affairs. But that's that's a, a, a very traditional tactic in great power competition to prop up. Uh, fourth multipliers in a way, whether you're looking at it in the, the aspect of the United Nations, the largest voting bloc, typically United Nations are developing countries, more specifically in Africa and South America. So uh, if you look at the tactics of Russia and China, a lot of their their initiatives in, in uh, foreign affairs have to do with what's called the Global South. For Russia, a lot of their interests can be correlated to containment as far as our access to these mineral resources. And I understand that a lot of our technology that we have, laptop, cell phones, new type of algorithms, well not algorithms but also um, supercomputers, a lot of those mineral resources come from Africa, more specifically um, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. If you're able to acquire security arrangements, especially through a private military contracting, such as the Wagner Group, I can operate effectively carte blanche with plausible deniability. We see the same thing with Iran, with their proxy groups across the Middle East. It decreases the amount of accountability the Kremlin would have to take um, during certain questionable actions. So prime example, I will use the Central African Republic, where Wagner has a strong, not just presence, but overall partnership with their government. And their goal is they do under counterterrorism or uh, supporting the government is essentially to provide security arrangements to uphold the, the authoritarian uh, structures of, of an African government. Um, in exchange, their payments can be in the forms of mineral resources. Uh, Mali, for example, is a very, it's another prime example of this, Mali, the Mali government, which is also under a coup government, has very, very, very strong ties with Wagner Group in Russia. Their payments and a lot of their locations have to do with the vast deposits, especially gold and mineral resources. So it's pretty much sustaining um, authoritarian based governments um, in exchange for military, strategic, or strategic military defense cooperation. So, military sales, easier negotiations for resource access or uh, United Nation influences uh, or decreasing the chances of attractiveness to foreign invest, Western foreign investments. Um, It's very, very, very strategic, but that's part of the misinformation, disinformation, hybrid warfare structure that Russia has always utilized against the West.
2: Now, speaking of Russia, I I got it. Let's take it to Eastern Europe right now. One thing that's really surprised me now in you know, year and a half plus of, of this conflict between Russia and Ukraine is that there's not a lot of footage about what's actually happening on the ground. To me, that's been the most stark difference you've seen with Israel Hamas, which we'll get into. We see everything already. It's been two weeks in Israel Hamas and there's this footage of pretty much everything that's possibly occurring. Ukraine's just like a dark spot on the map here, man, where nothing seems to be getting out. And I, I don't know. I've heard... I've read different reports that uh, Russia's forces depleted the rate of collapse. I've heard other things that, you know, Ukraine has lost 500, 500,000 people and they're ready to collapse. It seems like no one's getting the real story of what is happening there right now. What's your take on it?
3: Yeah, no, I, I can agree. You know, where I get my, my, my is from I've been able to sneak myself into some of the telegram channels, but ideally, I mean, you're absolutely right. When the, we're in the point where, now Klaus of it's always talked about the fog of war and he was talking about it as far as the battlefield but in the modern sense the fog of war is easily now manipulated through media and and information warfare and we're seeing that not just by the Russians but also on some aspects the Ukrainians the the situation in in Ukraine is often can be viewed as tricky because similar in similar ways is the the Hamas and, and Israel. Whatever footage that we that we receive, I would always say take it with a grain of salt and wait for further information.
2: I mean, is it deep fake? Um, you don't know. You don't even know at this point.
3: Deep fakes, um, misinformations, and but the reason being is because of a, a part of that has to do with the vulnerabilities of certain uh, military operations. If we, if you and I were doing this uh, podcast. Uh, let's say in connect somewhere. And Russia was able to acquire the the emissions from this communications doing whether it's SIGIN or electronic warfare, they will then have our geolocation. And if we were on the side of the Ukrainians, then we will be susceptible to artillery or missile strike. And so there has been considerable decreases in trans communication um components that we saw earlier in the, the russia ukraine war. Nowadays, both sides are being extremely careful, especially when we're talking about the introduction of mass drone warfare um, with not just ISRs, so that's intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions, which then are prompted by uh, precision strikes. It's incredibly dangerous um, to record and then upload footage yeah. from the battlefield.
2: You know, I've not heard anybody say that, but that makes complete sense because you're looking, you know, Hamas basically came in with paragliders and homemade rockets and other things and, you know, breach the fence. Now, we're going to get into that too, but you're right. You've got full Western NATO technology going against Russia's, if not their best technology, some of it. So that uh, that, that electronic digital footprint probably is way more significant.
3: Absolutely. And I, we I, I we never talk.
2: considered that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, interesting. What based on channels of information that you've been listening to, who's winning?
3: <laughs> nobody, <laughs> no, absolutely nobody. I will say this: Ukraine has demonstrated um, a whole lot of things, a key thing. But they, the the, the Ukrainian will of fight and not only break through the first line of uh, Russian defense and in the rounds of the second and hopefully the third, and then. Them being able to push back the Russian Black Sea fleet shows a few a few key insights. And that's the Russian military, the Russian armed forces, you know, people like to say that it was the second most powerful in the world, with the inclusion of the nuclear uh, stockpile that they have. It gave us the realization that yeah. although technology may advance, the operations can stay the same. Russian tactics have stayed the same since the days of Stalin and that's just mass fort mass force being pushed with artillery bombardments multiple launching rocket systems Etc the reality of war has not changed really it's just now that the exposure of the the whole of society with uh, with advanced technologies has changed the realities of war everybody, can see the, the results or be also at the same time become victims of war because of technology. This is a war that is easily um, demonstrating how in, in the incorporation of advanced mass media um, can be weaponized to change the 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 framework or the, the operation or the realities of a battle space that we have never seen before. Um, look at Starlink. For example, uh with with um with Elon. It, it's insane that n- commercial-based technologies demonstrating its dual-based this dual usage that has altered and influenced the means of a battlefield. And we're seeing that in our eyes every day.
2: And and to 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 your point in terms of the fact that you've got new technologies, but the old tactics have not necessarily changed by some accounts i've read that about 20 percent of the ukrainian population is now gone they've fled yeah how so you know you're talking seven eight million people out of out of a a population of 47 48 million people you've got obviously the east completely destroyed at least based on some of the footage that we've seen how does the country come back from that?
3: that that's the question that a lot of people um are 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 trying to, to ponder on we're talking about a war between two of europe's largest countries uh, by just geographic mass the we're not even talking about a scale of a brain drain where your, your intellectuals are the ones that are leaving this is something that will take we're talking about the scale of a marshall plan but in the modern sense this means ukraine and European Union um, discussions of not just membership, uh, but also serious large-scale amounts of financial investments and, and and infrastructural development. But also, we're talking about investments in the the psychological return of of Ukrainians that are impacted psychologically by this war. We're not talking about just the mass migration to other countries or internally displaced um, Ukrainians. But we're now talking about Ukrainians that have experienced the brutalities and realities of war and are still trying to process seeing loved ones perishing or or family homes perishing or former lives perishing or not knowing what's next. And Russia is banking on that. Russia is banking on discontent to further sow in Ukraine to diminish its morale, but also the morale of Western Europe. Um, it's a it's a classic Soviet tactic uh, because Western society is open. We openly, openly uh, um we openly discuss about politics, our, our, our lives, our economics, and Russia understands this. And because of this, Russia manipulates. And so Ukraine understands this, and Ukraine has to has to figure out a way forward with the European Union, with the United States, with our partners, even in the Asia-Pacific. The more that they become integrated within the global economy, the more they will have a greater pathway forward in this reconstruction efforts.
2: And you mentioned something on the scale of the Marshall Plan. Um, I would argue that the West, the United States and the West, significantly are in a different financial position. Yes. Than we were 70 years ago. Yes. Um, who's going to pay for it? Because you know we we've got we're in a situation now where 33, 34 trillion in debt. Right. Uh, a lot. we we're, this is not the we have an enormous manufacturing base. There's no question about that. A lot of it's been hollowed out over the last 30 years. One of my most positive things that I see happening economically in the United States. Since COVID, since the, the, all the wars breaking out, is supply chains have suddenly become a big question. You know, you don't want to spread them out now to save 1%. It is coming home, but that doesn't happen overnight. Who pays for reconstruction of a continental-sized country almost like Ukraine?
3: That's a golden question. And, and quite frankly, as you said, the United States in a predicament that it was 70, 75 years ago. And with their current um, economic status of the United States, America cannot foot the bill um, to to redevelop and and, and reestablish Ukraine. It uh, goes along the lines of it will have to be a European based initiative um, as part of a containment strategy um, against Russia and potential future Russian aggressions westward. Um, we we all, we all heard the slogan on the terms that you know it all starts with Ukraine. Uh, Russia and U.S. intelligence of the Ukraine was going to fall in three days. Now on the two years, yeah uh, with a lot of and, help a lot of help from the United a States lot of, <laughs> a lot of good old help there but yeah. it, it has to be a European um certain approach um to the reconstruction of Ukraine the same way that Israel and Hamas and the outcome of that would have to be a Middle East centered uh resolution and that's something the king of Jordan has been saying for the past two
2: weeks. No, no, I want to definitely talk on that. But I've got one more question about Russia. Yeah. Ukraine. I, I think that um, and this is not being pro-Ukraine, it's not being pro-Russia. It's just mm-hmm. looking at it from a purely economic standpoint. I think that two massive blunders for U.S. interests have occurred around this war. One, and I actually put up on my YouTube channel right after the war broke out, and we're talking about kicking Russia out of the SWIFT system. I said, do not weaponize the dollar. Don't weaponize your home currency. You, you want to encourage other countries to use it as a vehicle of trade. You don't, wanna, you don't want them all of a sudden to now get concerned that the State Department puts them in the cross, crosshairs. Their assets could be frozen or stopped, or they get kicked out of the financial system. I think that was a massive mistake. The other thing that I think was a massive mistake is through this war, we've managed to accomplish something that we've tried to avoid for the last 40, 50 years, and that was align Russia and China together. And now they've got this unlimited partnership that has come out of that, where you have China that by any measure, you know, the manufacturing capacity of China in terms of just raw industrial capacity is extraordinary. The mineral and the natural resources in Russia is second maybe to the United States. We're very blessed here that we have we have enormous resources on our own as well. But with those two issues, and then I definitely want to talk about Israel Hamas, you know, what's your take on that? What was it was it correct for the US to 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 basically block Russia out of the financial system, kick them out of SWIFT, weaponize the currency. And do you think now this is a long term partnership that's been forged between China and Russia? Two good
3: questions. One, um, the weaponization of the dollar, talked about the utilizing of effective economic sanctions as a uh, warfare, has been a long endorsed conversation since the days of Woodrow Wilson and even before. Um, and essentially it's kind of like the 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 nuke version of a not say like a non-military application of a nuke version. So doing full-on economic sanctions leading up to embargoes and weaponization of the dollar. Um, it's catastrophic. Reason being because the the consequence of a sanction or an embargo typically goes above and beyond the targeted government. It, it impacts the civilians, the populations, et cetera. And the thing like Russia, what we saw, uh, to your point of weaponizing the dollar, it does create an incentive for other organizations, uh, such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, um, BRIC, et cetera, to essentially come together to try to formalize their own currencies as a replacement or an alternative to the U.S. dollar. And we all know that part of being a hedge Um, is that that status of having your currency as being the reserve currency, being the the globally traded currency. We saw that with the British, we saw that with the Dutch, etc. The problem now is that because it was weaponized too much, not just against Russia, but also against any other country or, or nation that may demonstrate significant national security threat to the United States and strategic partners, the attraction of the currency starts to lessen. And because of that, you then have a bloc, such as Russia and China, who will then not only engage in a sort of backdoor or uh, a backdoor diplomacy with these particular nations, such as North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, um, and and, and other countries um, that defy a a U.S.-led order, it provides an incentive to construct Gradually, over time, um, a currency that not only establishes an an alternative order, uh, but it also, in a way, is being weaponized against the dollar. Um, So if you have the RMB, for example, across Africa and South America, it's slowly becoming the more preferred choice uh, currency as far as transactions. And we saw that we see that in the Middle East, especially in the partnership between Saudi Arabia and China when it comes to selling oil and natural gas. That's heavily, heavily, heavily um, difficult and is a challenge in national security. Now, the caveat of that is that the U.S. dollar is very, very resilient and um, that it has a proven record um, of not only stability long term, um, but more more specifically, it has, especially the institution that created it, uh, demonstrates transparency and accountability. That's what gives will continue to give the U.S. dollar attraction. I'm in alignment with the euro. Um, the RMB, the ruble, and then now BRICS is trying to establish their own currency. That's more of a, a reactionary initiative to try to to undermine the legitimacy of the United States. But the question of its stability and as an alternative source, I wouldn't buy into it. Um, it has no proven record of demonstrating its its uh, not just the scalability and attraction, uh, but also being able to have the same weight um, and transaction as the dollar. But it's, it's giving us a glimpse of immediate, short, and possibly long-term consequences if the dollar were to continue um, its weaponization. And go to your second question. This is a repeated pattern of China. Um, China likes to sit back and wait.
2: They're smart. I'm telling you, they're smart. They play chess. They play. They play. They play Go. They're, they're they're very patient.
3: And what China's effectively done between Russia and the United States, China is going back to Russia in the same way that it attached to the United States since the Sino-Soviet split. And before the Sino-Soviet split, China and Russia for about a good ten years were pretty buddy buddy. Uh, even before then, they were kind of okay. Once the the chinese civil war really started um they were okay as far as joseph stalin sending military soviet military advisors and and um and some small scale weaponry but what china is doing especially in the the russian far east and once you get towards the peninsula um in the far east is that effectively they are allowed Allowing Russia to continue to get bogged down in, in 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 Europe, taking those those lessons and learning not just or just applications towards Taiwan, but also trying to construct a, a, a an apparatus, an economic uh, apparatus, to where China's access to those untapped resources. They have access to the Arctic. They don't have to worry about Russia when it comes to implementing its Indo Pacific network. Uh, It's all under heaven structure. So it's unrestricted partnership is actually more beneficial to China because it buffers its northern borders. It provides a security into Central Asia. It's a way to pivot in a way, keep India kind of on a leash because of the Russia-India military uh, relationships of the 1970s. Uh, but then also, in a way, as you alluded to, gives it access to untapped natural resources so that it can bolster its its infrastructure, its, its manufacturing capability, its industrial base uh, in a way to where it can push out the United States out of the, the three island chains and supplant itself with the nine dash line and, 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 and really use it as a projection point. Russia. Is on the losing side of that agreement of that partnership because it doesn't really have, especially now, counterweight to the Chinese. The Chinese now sees the real reality of the Russian armed forces can't really do much against when you're against eight million people. Really, if you take the PLA, all of its branches, Chinese security forces, its paramilitary forces, on top of the the now five hundred nuclear warheads and hypersonic missiles that it has, Russia is more of the lesser partner in that strategic relationship. Um, So China, I recommend to not just you, um, but also anybody that listens, to pick up a book called 36 Stratagems. The 36 Stratagems, we don't know who wrote it, but we do know it was around the same time as Sun Tzu. And it talks about 36 ways or deception tactics, not strategies, Mm -hmm. but stratagems deception tactics to ensure that you craft your strategic battle space so that you lure your opponent and you can win a a war without really firing a shot so if you read the art of war with the 36 stratagems and you look at what china is doing now you're like you're going to have your oh my god moment this is this is what they're doing and it's what China refers to whenever they talk about the one state period, uh, when they talk about their legacies when they were trying, trying to create the Chinese empire, reading Chinese history, you can see their strategy. So, Thursday Stratagems is a great book, very easy read. Um, so, then you can really see that this unrestricted partnership is just one of the stratagems.
2: I will definitely. Check. I read Otter War years ago. Uh, I'll definitely check that one out. Uh, before we continue, can you go? Over, can you go a little bit longer because there's two more topics I want to. I want to touch on. Yeah, absolutely. I, Bill Bill said he's good to go for a couple of extra minutes as well. All right, let's take this thing. Um, we're going to end with Israel Hamas. How about that? Let's stay on China for a second. And you know, I think that the 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 prize here, at least economically, would in terms of these kind of three fronts that we got going on right now, would be Taiwan. I don't know. I'm not in the camp, and I am I hope I hope I'm right. I'm not in the camp that China invades Taiwan. I think it would be catastrophic to the infrastructure of Taiwan, which which you're killing the you're killing the goose that's mm-hmm. laying the golden egg. If, if I were if I were China, of course, I'm not and I'm not thinking the same way. I would sort of let the West be. I, I would let the West prove to the world that maybe we're not as powerful as we have projected ourselves to be. The economic and I'm an optimistic guy, so I know this sounds all real negative, but the economic strength and stability gets called into question, particularly if things occur in the Middle East. Like, what if the Straits of Hormones get shut off? I mean, you're talking 20% of the world's oil, 25% of gas shut down immediately. That There'd be economic repercussions to that hugely. To then draw yourself closer to the Taiwanese government and say, hey, you know which which team do you want to be on here? I don't think they attack Taiwan, and I really hope that that's the case because I don't think they need to at this point. Would you agree with that?
3: I will agree because that it's not in the it's not in the the Chinese strategy, especially when it comes to the development of their perception of a world order to invade a country. Um, they tried it with Vietnam uh, with their border in seventy nine didn't end so well. Um, just to, that just because of the geography of their border, but um, there's another book called. I'm gonna butcher this words in Chinese. Tianxia, so T-I-A-N-X-I-A, and it means all under heaven. The all under heaven model first it started as a kind of an ethical philosophy to look at the world, but then it turned into a political framework to where through economic statescraft and other means of um, projection of influence, you essentially you construct um, a network of puppet states. Um, around your border, however, the, the the president or the king that's in Nanking at the time or now Beijing, is the center of that of that world, the center of that of that heaven, and so with every with the amount of money that's in Taiwan, the amount of inf- infrastructure that's in Taiwan, the, whether it's uh, microchips, semiconductors, to its position towards South China Sea, it would be absolutely. Uh, counterintuitive or counterproductive for China to do a full military invasion, knowing that a lot of the infrastructure would have to be targeted in order to not only occupy the island, um, but also have it long term. That's not the way that China will conduct it. What how, in my opinion, how China will conduct it will be through internal instigation of Taiwanese political parties, which is a genuine fair right now, um, that there are sizable. Percentage of the Taiwanese population, um, more specifically political parties that are pro-Mainland China and who firmly believe that the best way forward is through coming into a series of negotiations with the mainland to usher in a process of integration without going to war. That is a real life idea in, in Taiwan. But we also see how China operates with its neighbors, not just North Korea, but also South Korea and Japan. Yeah, they may do ballistic missile um, tests, but the real strength of China, and China knows this, is, as we alluded to earlier, their industrial capacity, their influence on the, the social level, as well as in areas of investments and capital markets. So whenever, for example, Japan and China has a spat, China will call for an embargo against Japanese automobiles in, in, in China. So now Japan is losing a significant amount of money, which then pushes them to negotiation table. They do the same thing in South Korea. Uh, they do that. They attempt to do the same thing in Taiwan, but more so with the fishing market. They'll proclaim, over oh, for a week, we're going to prolong um, dockside investigations to make sure that there's compliance as far as fishing regulations." While you have all your fruits, your fishes just hitting at the dock, not entering to the Chinese market, Now you're forcing an economic stress. Uh, China's doing the same thing in the Philippines, as uh, well, I say, in the, the the South China Sea near the Philippines with their fishing uh, militia. The same exact thing, denying you access to natural resources that your economy depends on. So then you slowly become integrated into the Chinese sphere. And increase your dependency. So, th- I don't see China invading Taiwan. China thrives on the notion of impending invasion, um, especially when it comes to having an excuse to advance their armed forces. Uh, but it'll be completely counter, counter, counterintuitive, and would actually hurt China long term economically uh, if they did an invasion of Taiwan. It will hurt them more long term uh, than than doing a, a nuclear option
2: i i i i agree with you 100% on that now let's let's kind of we we'll wind up with sort of where i started in terms of what's dominating the news headlines right now is israel and hamas so as of at least today you know the ground invasion of gaza has been delayed i think they're waiting for more naval assets to kind of arrive from the united states into the eastern mediterranean to me this seems like i think we need some cooler heads to maybe prevail here. And again, this is not pro-Israel. It's not pro-Palestine. It's pro the United States and pro the good of 99.99% of the people on the planet. When I hear a guy like Lindsey Graham uh, calling it a religious war, which I don't think he... I've spent, I've spent a good chunk of time in Islamic countries. I don't think he realizes what he's saying to a... He, he says it to a secular society like the United States, which is largely what we've become. It does not have the same impact that it would... Any Muslim society, where if you're calling for a religious wars, not even close. And he should know that he's a U.S. senator. But I don't, I don't, you know, Lindsey Graham, don't care if I'm getting into politics here. Not one of my favorite guys. And then he's talking about having to go in and taking out Iran's, you know, oil capacity if for every for every uh, U.S. hostage, it's impact, or if Hezbollah gets involved in the north. This is really, this is not. This is people not thinking things through. This is people, you know, we rely on our leaders to not be emotive. You know, they have to have to have some compassion and empathy for the these pieces around they're moving around the chessboard, but they cannot be dominated by whatever that first gut instinct of emotion is. I'm not don't know that I'm seeing that from from any of our leaders. And my concern is that this thing, you know, you go in, you raise Gaza, that's fine. But now you have Hezbollah comes in from the north, and that's Iran. Now now you've got a problem with Iran you got a problem with Iran. Now you've got a problem in Russia, and it would definitely benefit them from engaging us in that capacity. China, I think, would largely sort of just watch and, and kind of get a kick out of it. But you close the straits off. A quarter, basically, of the world's energy supply is essentially shut down. Now you're looking at re- the, the, the the ways that this thing can spiral out into something not just regional but much bigger, to me, is really sobering. And I'm not getting a sense that people are taking this seriously enough. Like, w- w- What's your take?
3: I actually had the conversation yesterday and I stated that the worst case scenario, if uh, we don't have level-headed leadership, is that this will no longer, I mean, it's, no, it's really no longer a regional situation. This has, this has global ramifications, but in the act of, if we go from observation to just purely, if it just continues to go worse and somebody does the wrong action, it will truly become a global War And that's not something to alarm people, but it's just the facts on on what I see. And I'll tell you why. For example, when we're talking about Hezbollah, when we talk about Hamas, a lot of people always ask, where are they getting money how they finance? And they openly tell you. A lot of their money comes through crypto. Crypto crypto is not regulated. Because they utilize crypto, they're able to access black market sales or black market points, not just in the Middle East, but around the world. One of those areas is the tri-border area in South America between Brazil, Uruguay, and Paraguay. There is a huge, not just a Lebanese population there, but also Hezbollah makes billions a year on trafficking just from that area alone. We talked about Hezbollah Hamas and the Iranian presence in Venezuela. Margarita Island is utilized for fake passports between Venezuela and Iran to not only train, but also to... Overseeing logistical supplies for Hezbollah and Iran. Iran is in Venezuela to protect Maduro. They have mutual agreements, not just as well, understandings, not just as natural gas uh, production, but also their their viewpoint ideologically towards the United States. That also aligns with Russia and China, who are and Cuba, who are also there in in, in uh, Venezuela. When it comes to the Middle East framework. Everybody is waiting to see what Hezbollah is going to do. That is going to be the the greatest determination of where do we go next. And I don't think everybody really understands the capabilities of
2: Hezbollah. It's, a, it's Iran. It's not Hamas. This isn't homemade rockets. This is a very different group.
3: We're talking anti-ship missile capabilities, and they show that 15, 17 years ago when they attacked an Israeli corvette, and it was successful. Uh, they have approximately 150,000 rockets that we know of. Uh, in addition to that, their logistic networks go well into Syria. It goes well into Iraq. Um, in Syria alone, there's about 830 foreign military bases. 70% is owned by Iran and Hezbollah. 70% of our 830 installations are owned by Hezbollah and, and, and Iran. Um, to not just reinforce Bashar al Assad, the president of Syria, but also to reinforce their positions as close to Israel as possible. Um, the other factor, the Houthis in Yemen, they've recently demonstrated that they have the capabilities to launch ballistic missiles at Israel. Granted, we've been able to intercept them. Uh, with our with our naval assets in the red, near the Red Sea, uh, however, it proves to show you that the Iranian regional network—it's not really regional; it's global. Iran has been with North Korea since the 1980s. They've been with China since the 1980s. They've been with Russia since the early 1990s. They've had cooperation with Libya going back to the 1980s under Muammar Gaddafi that prompted them to expand their ballistic missile programs. Iran has the largest arsenal of ballistic missiles in the Middle East, ranging from a few uh, uh, kilometers to 2,000 kilometers. They have cruise missiles that they were able to acquire in 2001 through the Ukrainian um, black market after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They have the opportunity, they have the knowledge to reverse engineer. And then last week, the United Nations resolution back in 2015, as far as the um, JCPOA for the nuclear deal, has expired. So now they can export, they can c- export their conventional weapons, and they can also acquire large mass scales of conventional weapons. This happened last Tuesday. In addition to this, Hezbollah is just as patient as they are. They're just as patient because they understand their capabilities or never they, they never stop their development and understanding. They operate in a way as a conventional military force. They do. And so I posted on my LinkedIn that the phenomenon that we're seeing is that we're seeing non-state proxies or quasi-state proxies or actors. I say quasi because Hezbollah is part of the Lebanese government, but it has its own armed forces. Uh, we're seeing non-state slash quasi-state actors synergized to operate as a conventional armed force against a sovereign nation state for the first and, and a large scale, not just on the media side, the 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 information-based warfare side, but we're also talking about conventional and asymmetric operations on the ground. Why do you include Hamas into that picture at that at the end of, of of this observation and evaluation, the worst case scenario is something happens, especially after what Lindsey Graham said. Something happens towards Iranian oil refineries or somewhere in Iraq where there, are both confirmed and unconfirmed reports of um, these proxies are targeting U.S. installations. If that continues to escalate and we further get dragged into this war. It's just going to open up Pandora's box because there's Russia uh, and Syria already. There's China with their support to Iran, four hundred billion dollars. They, they've they've cre- they've signed off on on agreements. Mm-hmm. Iran joined the S.E.O. Iran is joining BRICS. Um, Iran is becoming more interconnected into this alternate order against the United States. Right now, we have the red lines in the sand, but nobody because of the high stakes of emotions and the lack of logic and level-headed leadership. We're all blinded at this point. Everybody just wants revenge. What happens if you push that revenge too far and you miscalculate the outcomes? That is my fear.
2: Well, here's the thing though, Samaj, is you and I are, you're in this world. I'm just, you know, I'm just in the finance world, but I feel like I need to know what's going on. We are thinking rationally, but I don't, See, very few of our political leaders are are speaking as rationally about this as you and I are, and and that to me is pretty staggering. Um, let me let me ask you this. So, all right, you mentioned the the in, the footprint rather that Iran has in South America, around you know, Paraguay. Uh, I think you mentioned Paraguay, Argentina, Brazil around there. You got Venezuela. All right, we also now have probably seven eight million people that have kind of strolled across our southern border in the last two and a half years. You'd be crazy if you didn't think at least some of those people might not have the best intentions for the United States. And if I were Iran, if I I were an enemy of the United States, I would take this opportunity. I mean, come on. Why would you not be flooding the country with operatives that would be willing to execute if you called them to do so? What do you think the... I think there's a real – somebody was four blocks away when the towers came down in New York. Things that you can't imagine can happen can actually happen. What do you think is the likelihood that we see something on U.S. soil because of people that that are in the country right now that we don't know are here that shouldn't be?
3: So, interesting question. Um, And I always tell people I always try to expect the unexpected and really keep every all take all options on the table there's always could be a probability that someone uh, with a with malign intent will come through that southern border absolutely um the degree the, the size don't know but with the the sheer amount uh, I'm talking hundreds of thousands each month coming through the Darien gap and making their way um, to the southern border, and we've already started hitting record numbers of, of migrants uh, coming into, or well, coming across the border into the nation. Um, that should be a factor that, especially now, should always be taken into consideration. Um, it's not something that can only happen in a fantasy world, because if somebody has a motive, as you, know, you brought up nine eleven, they will commit to it. The other notion of of, of that is interesting because. We've already seen um, footage and and, and reports of people of Chinese descent coming through the border, Uh, people of Siberian Russia descent coming through the border. It's not just Central and South Americans that are coming through the border that are trying to get into the United States. The other side that to be taken into consideration uh, when we look at the whole thing is some of the differences of the American Muslim community in relation to the Middle East. And we've seen that, especially after 9-11, the federal government, versus the Bush administration, received substantial assistance and help and support from the U.S. Muslim um, communities. Um, The problem that resides, and this is that, unfortunately, with people that have hot-headed Emotional outbursts or or viewpoints um, within their leadership capacities is that once we get to a point of seeking revenge and the blindfolds are on, we don't work in reality. And reality is is that all Muslims or all Palestinians, et cetera, don't support Hamas. But because we are in a state of high emotional um, alert the the degree of logic that's needed to go through this type of crisis is pushed out the window it's it's something that is short term we need a short-term response now we don't have time to get into the the sunni the shia the Abadi. they belong to this school or this is the the french muslim point of view the american muslim point of view the indonesian uh point of view all of that is thrown out of, of of the scenario and that's even more dangerous reason it's even more dangerous because in a situation like this and we've seen this throughout the course of the week with from muslim community leaders especially with regards to the biden administration we those are the type of allies uh you need when it comes to navigating crisis resolutions such as this that deals with religion that deals with history between two groups that we're not talking about a history that goes back to 1944. We're talking about something that goes back thousands of years. And this is not something, this is not a conflict that's just gonna be resolved from a Camp David summit or an accord or whatever the case may be. This is a continual generational conflict resolution that has to involve input and participation from those that are affiliated with these impacted uh, identities from the very senior leadership structure of these communities. To the grassroots, uh, grassroots younger generations, because those are the individuals that are looking at all of this, the news cycles, the footages, whether it's misinformation and disinformation. And then they're making a decision of whether or not, am I going to be pro Israel, pro Palestine, or do I really want to bring both parties together to, for the greater good? Because if this continues, Iran is going to further get involved. And if Iran gets involved, we're talking about the Bader organization in Iraq. We're talking about the popular mobilization units in Iraq. We're talking about Hezbollah and the Hezbollah's pro-Iranian small proxies that they have in in Syria. We're talking about the Houthis um, in in Yemen. We're also talking about there's a small Shia population in Nigeria. They came out to be pro-Palestinian. And then also, you have the Biafran Liberation Army in Nigeria that came out to be pro-Israel. So we're seeing that... Even though this is starting in the Middle East, if you're talking about religious war, especially when you're talking about religion, Africa, Middle East, here in the United States, France, for example, that in Spain, Portugal, all the way to Indonesia, they have experiences between Protestant, Christian, Catholics, and Muslims. You bring up religious war, as you alluded to, that's the Muslim, that's jihad, that's But even the ramifications of of jihad, depending on how it's implemented, have grave implications in itself. We're talking about a full-on total war when it comes to a religious war in the Middle East. And Lindsey Graham and those that are like him, without getting into politics, as I like to remain out of the political (laughs) structure. But these words, especially as they're being tailored to a foreign audience, have significant weight, significant. And that even bleeds into our partnerships with these nations.
2: He's a U.S. Senator. He's one of 100 people. And and to come out and say what he said. Yeah, <laughs> don't get me don't, don't, going on, Lindsay, because to me, that's not even a Democratic and Republican issue. That's just being a moron.
3: Russia's capitalizing yeah, diplomatically. Um, China is capitalizing diplomatically. The Palestinian Authority um, ambassador in China last week released a um, a video on the the Weibo um, that the, that they have um, thanking the Chinese people um, for their for their support. Russia condemning the the mobilization of our aircraft carriers and then announced that they are deploying their bombers with the Kinzhal hypersonics. All of this, it's just. It only takes one person. It only takes one person to like that match. And right now, I'm glad that the offensive in Gaza has been delayed because Hezbollah has stated, and so has the Houthis. That is a red line, a significant red line, that if it is crossed, they will have regional implications. Yeah.
2: You know, I'll with this, I think, in terms of, for all these conflicts, there needs to be an off ramp where everyone can save a certain degree of face. I mean, even you, you go back to the, the Cuban Missile Crisis with with Kennedy. Yes, it was a major foreign policy victory that he was able to to, you know, I guess, reduce that threat and send the Russians packing. But we gave up our missile. We gave up some missile uh, assets that we had in Turkey. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't all a one sided thing that led to that resolution. And, and there's got and I've said this since the early di- earliest days of the Ukraine, Russia thing is you have got you've got to resolve these in a way that both people walk away with something where they think they've won. Um other, otherwise your option is that you fight this thing out and we have not seen that we've been very fortunate in the United States where it hasn't been here at home even during World War II and it is also a lot of the military recent military adventures that we've had it's been at a distance you know it hasn't it hasn't been it's been against people with really limited you know uh ability to shoot down airplanes they might have some grenade launchers and some other things but we're not not of the likes of iran of of russia of, of china and this is this is a really different thing and to think that that we can roll in here with this with, with a big stick and it's going to work the same way it always has i just think we need to be real cautious on that well samaj i kept you man for over an hour and uh this i knew this was going to be an enlightening conversation uh, it's far more enlightening than, than I thought. Uh, you, you, you got a lot of information in that brain of yours. <laughs> <laughs>
3: all I do is sit and read and read and sit.
2: So. Well, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. And, and and thanks so much for carving time out of your day. And uh, and I'm looking and, and I, I I have to close with this because I know we got on some heavy topics. I am an eternal optimist. I believe in and I say this to clients all the time. I believe in hum, in human beings capacity to create, to build, to grow. Because if we don't do that, then what the heck's the point of anything we're doing here? Um, I think that uh, you know the United States I have a lot of criticisms in terms of the, some of the direction we've taken over the last, uh, not even just a few years, but over the last few decades. But I think we're we're people that I think it was Woodrow Wilson that said, you can count on the United States to do the wrong thing until the time they have to, not Woodrow Wilson, I'm sorry, Churchill, I think said, you can count on the United States to, to do the wrong thing until the time where they've got to do the right thing. And, and I, I believe that that is still us as a people but uh but i think it's also very important not to walk around with rose-colored glasses and accept reality it's kind of one of my number one rules for life is accept reality and then you move from there and i think you gave us a heavy dose of reality today samaj and i really i thank you dear uh, deeply for for spending this time with me
3: well thank you for uh, the opportunity to give that dosage your reality and it's always important to know that sometimes all things in reality everything that glitters ain't gold um but at the end of the day if you understand uh, the the rhythms of, of reality and we'll, we'll be okay you know that's one thing humans are we we are resilient in and in, in getting through conflicts and there's been many times we've almost went extinct but we've uh there's eight billion of us now so we're we're good
2: <laughs> and we're incredibly adaptable. i think human beings are awful at risk mitigation we're really great at, at adapting once a crisis comes so let's let's hope that uh, a year from now you and i you and i have a conversation it's a lot with a lot less hot points than we have today
3: <laughs> fingers crossed <laughs> Otherwise, I'm coming back with a full head of hair that's
1: great. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brett, that was an interesting conversation. It was, uh, as I frequently refer to uh, when I when I speak with friends, a grown-up conversation. And I mean it in the sense of we just don't have much of a tolerance for grown-up conversations these days. We want to make things short. We want things quick. We want a little headline. We want a little quick soundbite and have it, have it be over with. So, Thank you for uh, facilitating today's conversation. Appreciate that. If anybody's listening and they want to further the conversation with you in any other kind of way, how would they best get a hold of you? To put your information out there for us, will you please? Well,
2: let's start with Samaj on that. Samaj, people want to reach you. I, I, I we connected on LinkedIn. But if people want to reach you and, and and gain some of your insights and hear about what you're doing, how do they contact you?
3: Best way to contact me is through LinkedIn. Um, that's the I check LinkedIn uh, frequently. Uh, so. Find me on LinkedIn, and I I talk to everybody. Uh, I'm not not somebody that's their way from conversations. I love meeting new people and gaining new insights.
1: Very good. Now we got Samaj on LinkedIn. Brent, how do we get a hold of you?
2: I'd say LinkedIn as well is kind of the the most social platform I'm most active on. Uh, You can always call us here in the office at 602-255-0555. Uh, Andy or Kayla or Susan are going to answer, I'll answer. And we'd love to, if this um, sparked any additional conversation you'd like to have about uh, what this might mean in, in the investment landscape, I'm happy to have that conversation. Uh, mpadvisorsaz.com or smartmoneysimplified.com is our website. And uh, yeah, if anyone uh, has has listened to this and if it's raised some questions about um, about uh, what this might mean, you know, what this might mean for them personally or or how you can potentially Position yourself financially, at least in a very uncertain world. I'm, I'm happy to have that discussion.
1: Yeah, It is a very uncertain world that we are operating in. I want to close on a light note, though, because I want to uh, I thank both of you for mentioning the world's oldest continuously played board game, which is Go. So if any of your <laughs> listeners aren't familiar with the board game, you should check it out because it is all about strategy and the acquisition of territory. And it is a phenomenally complicated very rich game and uh almost as worth worth your time as much as this podcast is and
2: and more moves in go theoretically than atoms in the entire universe i mean it's it's amazingly complex and uh, i don't play go the only the only reason i sound smart by throwing that out there is because of i'm I'm, uh doing an ai course at wharton right now and uh we're talking about deep mind when when they came in and obliterated you know but they were not supposed to be able to Right. It, you know, AI was not supposed to win and go. And I think it was back 2017 where they did and, and how how they did it. And it wasn't brute force computation is pretty interesting, pretty interesting stuff. But uh, yeah, so I don't play go, but maybe I should maybe I should learn.
1: It's an incredibly <laughs> rich game. Yeah, it's an incredibly rich game. And it's amazing. And I played it once a long time ago. And, uh, it, you know, it's not a game you can play much in the United States. <laughs> it's, it's roots are in China. Yeah. But, yeah, that's no, a great game. Samaj, thank you very much for being with us. And listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen today. I hope you found this conversation interesting and especially useful. So maybe that will motivate you to hit the subscribe button if you are not already a subscriber. That way you don't have to worry about missing another episode of this podcast, because it will be delivered directly to you. All right. Thank you so much. I'm Bill Tucker here on behalf of Brent and MP Advisors. Thank you for listening and reminding you to live your best life, not tomorrow, but today. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602 255 Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.